This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth Control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Watergate. Punk Rock. Begin. Reagan. Palestine. Terror on the airline. Ayatollahs in Iran. Russians in Afghanistan. Wheel of Fortune. Sally Ride. Heavy metal suicide. Foreign debts. Homeless vets. Oh, gotta find some shelter from the storm. Hello again, and welcome to episode 114 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I am Tom Fordyce. Tom, I'm kind of wondering how we get to where we are today, because Billy thinks it might have something to do with homeless vets. Interesting one, Katie, when we started our research for this, have you researched homeless veterans or have you researched homeless veterinarians? (laughs) Uh, I I haven't. I hadn't uh, made that little uh, slip down the back of the sofa to the veterinarian conundrum. Just cross out my notes in that case. (laughs) Katie, your prior knowledge on this subject. The first thing that I was thinking about, about homelessness, was how the perception has changed just even during my lifetime growing up in the 60s and the 70s. I used to think, just based on the information I was getting from Saturday morning cartoons, you know, hobos and tramps, that was always a trope in cartoons, that they were like riding the rails and sucking on an old stogie and eating soup out of, or beans out of an open tin can that they'd heated over fire. Like, it seemed very festive. It seemed like glorified camping. More recently, I was listening to one of my favorite singers, Glenn Campbell, and he was singing that very beautiful John Hartford song, Gentle on My oh, Mind. What a tune. So beautiful. And it's all it's very melancholic and he's he's thinking about this woman who's just always been there for him. And then you listen to the lyrics and he starts singing about he's got a sleeping bag stashed behind her sofa. And in fact, he's not with her now because he's riding the rails with some other tramps and he's effectively homeless. And so I'm thinking why was it so romantic? It was so romanticized, this idea of like not having a home. And then it was made to be, you know, it was seen as this kind of um, footloose, fun-loving lifestyle. Yeah, the freedom of the open road, Katie. It's quite Kerouac, isn't it? Yeah. It also reminds me, um, as you know, I've got two young boys and there is no funnier word in the English language for two young boys than the word bum. There is a song, Katie, which dates back to 1928 by Harry McClintock and it is a tale of the Great Depression era vagrancy, but because it features the word bum, indeed it's called Hallelujah, I'm a bum, <laughs> yes. my boys love it. I'm going to try and play you a little bit of this because this underlines what you're saying about the romance of the road. Rejoice and be glad, for the springtime has come. We can throw down our shovels and go on the bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. Give us a hand out. So I, that song, so funny. My dad used to sing that, but I didn't know it had the, all these verses. We listened to it before we started recording about like showing up at a lady's house and asking for bread, and she told him the baker was dead and shove off. But uh, yeah, he used to you know sing in his lovely basso profundo, "Hallelujah, I'm a bum," and leave it at that. 
but sort of an odd thing that like maybe that was the only get out of jail free clause if you were trapped in some sort of uh, confining domestic situation. Yeah. Well, Casey, I strangely know a very small amount about this topic because when I was in my university days, um, I spent a summer in San Francisco putting together a dissertation about homelessness and San Francisco in the mid 1990s became a nexus for the sort of pro homelessness movement, partly because a lot of homeless people would naturally find themselves migrating to the sunshine of California, partly because San Francisco has always been a very liberal city and California had a liberal governor, Diane Feinstein, at that time. So I spent about three or four months working with a homeless charity and talking to homeless people and putting yeah. together this dissertation. It was a long time ago, well, though, Katie. It, drug casualties as well. Was, she, was Diane Feinstein the mayor of San Francisco? She was either man, then she became the oh, governor right, of California. Right. I'm okay. going to be getting my dates wrong. But Katie, yeah. I have so little knowledge of that period left in my time. I'm very glad that we have someone much Sounds wiser. Like you, just, you just like threw that in there that you did a whole <laughs> dissertation. Like, anyway, I'll let you proceed. I'll let you proceed. A dissertation in 1994, okay. Katie, versus our very learned guest, Stephen Ide. Stephen is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where he researches social policy questions like homelessness and mental illness. He's also written a book called Homelessness in America. Stephen, welcome to We Didn't Start the Fire. Thanks so much for having me. Now, as always with Billy Joel, we find ourselves asking, what exactly does he mean by this lyric? So when we come across this song. Katie, we're in the sort of the middle of the 1980s. So Stephen, what do you think he's referring to first of all? Yeah, it's at the very end of the song and it comes up with a number of the other features of what you might call the kind of dystopian vision of the 1980s. You know, foreign debt, homeless vets, AIDS crack, uh, Bernie Gatz. <laughs> uh, so things are getting very eerie towards the end. And it really, I think, captures the way that homelessness bursts on the scene or modern homelessness, at least, as you guys referenced, there's always been poor people in America. This, you know, we use different words for it. We didn't use the term homelessness, but this term homelessness really goes viral in the early 1980s. And that's because of a reaction to people, especially living in cities, who notice this population just sort of popping up in train stations, in the New York City subway system, in public places, living out of public places. Um, and it also has this kind of darker character to it, all the romantic traces, which, as you know, were a very important part of homeless population and the popular perception thereof um, generations ago, all that goes away. And this new type of problem and this new type of debate gets going. And when we're talking about homeless veterans, I guess, Stephen, we're talking about Vietnam War veterans, but is it right that there'd always been a population of homeless veterans if you go back to the First World War, certainly after the Second World War in the Truman presidency? There'd always been heightened political sensitivity to the needs of veterans. Um, veterans had been a very important political lobby in the late 19th century. The GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, Civil War veterans, um, very intimidating lobby. This also comes up in the wake of World War One, World War Two. But the intersection with deep poverty, the intersection with homelessness, that's a newer thing. And it really uh, c- kind of sends politicians scrambling, government systems, and also the public in terms of, you know, what is going on with this country? What to make of this? People who were homeless in the 70s and 80s was a large 
portion of their cohort made up of Vietnam veterans. There's always been this distinction between our, how large is the homeless veterans population? Is it larger than it should be or is it really, really large? Amongst the larger homeless population, when researchers look at what you might call the risk factors, what are the, you know, the qualities in your like, life that are likely to make you, as opposed to other people, wind up on the streets, serious mental illness, addiction, veteran status independent of those factors is not anything like that. But some researchers found slightly larger portion of the veterans population likely to be homeless than the population is as a whole. And also in general, it's just people's perception is that, well, however large it is, it's way larger than it should be because these are people who sacrificed for us. You're talking about the intersection of, of mental illness, of course, and other factors like uh, drug abuse with with homelessness and also poverty. And it seems to me that Every aspect of America's war in Vietnam was suffused with underestimation and naivete, how easy it would be, the support of American citizens for it, the reaction of the rest of the world, basically the the, the willingness of Americans to fight in it, people scrambling to, to try to avoid the, the draft. And of course, then the human cost in lives and the walking wounded who survived. Can you talk, Stephen, about the perception of what shell shock post-traumatic stress disorder was back in the 60s and the 70s? Yeah, th this idea that, you know, what have we done to these people? This issue of trauma is a very big deal now in American culture, and the veterans issue played a big role in, in elevating it. One thing that happens is the anti-war left recognizes that um, you really don't want to be perceived as anti-veteran and anti-war. You want to make sure that you're pro-veteran, but also anti-war, and that was something that there's becomes this assumption that someone who has served is likely to have some sort of trauma associated with their service. That is something that is pushed by critics of the war. It's also something, by the way, that veterans groups themselves push. This idea that trauma is a medical condition and thus government programs, um, healthcare providers are required to service it, that is something that Vietnam War lobbying groups push very aggressively. You know, movies that are made about war, about veterans now, even if it's essentially a patriotic movie, they have to at least tip their hat to this issue of PTSD and trauma somehow in a way that certainly didn't happen like, you know, the World War II era movies in the 50s. I think we should get into it, to all the, the various reasons why we might have seen this, this great spike in homelessness in America at that time. But yeah. But I'm wondering, first of all, Stephen, what was the reaction of, you, you touched on this, but the reaction of ordinary Americans to this, if they weren't used to seeing homelessness on their streets and in their cities, how did America react? A lot of pessimism, a lot of shame. Certainly there is a, an expansion of government programs that begins to get going in the 1980s that are targeted for homeless individuals. The connection with veterans plays a role in that because there's so much political support for programs for veterans. I mean, I, I mentioned the anti-war left, you know, the political right, like Republicans are not about to be outdone in support for the troops, right? So this is one of the most solid political coalitions you're talking about. So now we have these very large service systems built up, New York City, California, also at the federal level, to benefit the homeless population in particular. But of course, we have to do this sort of reassessment of how well these programs are working since um, it remains such a pressing issue in San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York especially. 
This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello Fire listeners, it's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no-fuss, no-mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Tom, you have piqued my interest with that very curious pretzel shape you seem to have contorted yourself into. Can you tell me more? Oh, Katie, thank you for, uh, there we go, recognising my Pilates skills. It's all thanks to Target Pilates, today's sponsor. Oh, well, you know what? I am a huge fan of Pilates because I have been twisting myself into pretzel shapes and straightening myself out from them for upwards of 30 years because I don't know if you knew this, Tom. I am bionic. I actually have <laughs> strange robotic body parts inserted inside of me. And that is why I need to iron myself out with physical therapy. So please 
Tell me more about Target Pilates. Well, Katie, Target Pilates is a virtual Pilates studio that's for everybody at any level, even beginners like me, and it's great for all my aches and pains. Katie, I think you know this, but Pilates is medically proven to improve symptoms of lower back pain. So, whether you've never tried Pilates before, want to move more and improve the way your body feels, or you want to step out of your comfort zone, there is a huge selection of resources to choose from with an ever-growing library of over 200 easy-to-follow online Pilates videos. Katie, these videos include, but are not limited to, Mm. quick 10-minute classes. Get in, get out. 30-minute classes with separate, easy, moderate and hard options. Going on all the rides. And Katie, a weekly 60-minute session. That's for people who like a commitment. One more thing, Katie. It is a lot more affordable than a lot of in-person studios at just £4.99 a month. And exclusively for our listeners, you can get three months for just £12. So if you'd like to try out Target Pilates, head to targetpilates.online forward slash fire. That's targetpilates.online forward slash F-I-R-E and you'll get three months for only £12. Stephen, I'm wondering what was the expectation back in the 60s, 70s, 80s for how the homeless would survive? Did people just assume that there'd be like a Daddy Warbucks style, like Monopoly guy with a top hat doling out cash or people were just being lazy? You needed to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, how did people think that these people were going to be cared for? Well, I mean, poverty in general has come and gone in terms of its salience in American politics. It was certainly a big issue in the 1960s, but when we talk about the homeless population or their equivalent, there was a kind of invisibility to them back in the 1960s. They were confined to these um, skid row neighborhoods with very cheap housing. They weren't living in those public places. So, You know, there was a kind of debate going on about poverty. There was the war on poverty was launched in the 1960s. But this population in particular, like, you know, old men, drunk and sober is one phrase. Older, single men, very, very poor. They were placeless. They were detached. They had no place in any known social order. Didn't have a family. Alcoholism was the big issue at that time, more than drugs and mental illness now. But... They weren't a driving concern of public policymakers at that time because they were the, quote, invisible poor, as distinct from the visible poor, which they became in the early 80s. How did right-wing Americans, Stephen, then reconcile this sort of this, this natural right-wing tendency to, to defend troops and to back troops with, as Katie says, the, the sort of the Reaganomics era of, you know, you end up where you deserve and if you're rich, you deserve to be rich. And if you're, if you're poor, well, you've made some sort of mistake. So there's the poverty aspect of homelessness. There's the personal responsibility aspect of it. But it does have this very large mental illness component to it. So to a degree, there's always been some degree of sympathy on the right to the idea that there is just something, you know, essentially disability driving at least the hardest cases and so what do we what do we do about that? I think it does put a big qualification on, you know, the Reagan era 
you know, in general, there was a lot going on in 1980s. There are many good things going on nationally in America, economic growth, you know, winning the Cold War. But it does put an important qualification on, you know, how much progress was made under the Reagan administration. It seems very poignant when you think about uh, all the sacrifices that soldiers would have made in war to end up so ignominiously on the streets. Can you talk a little bit about how they were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place? Because as we touched on before, it's not like the Vietnam War was particularly celebrated as a heroic project the way World War II and you know vanquishing the Nazis was. I mean, we lost was is the big difference. <laughs> yeah. So there there isn't this triumphalism among the country as a whole and the, the people who served. Uh, so in a way, it was a very new new kind of problem. A new, how, how do we, we really did need to kind of reconceptualize how we think of people who sacrificed for us for something that we probably shouldn't have done in the first place. In Germany in the interwar period, there was this idea of, you know, the stab in the back. They betrayed their World War I veterans, and that led to this sense of betrayal that really fueled the rise of the Nazis. It doesn't really take on that populist character, I think, in America, uh, maybe in part because, you know, the anti-war left in particular just tried to make, make clear that they're not blaming the veterans, that they're, they're pro-veteran. So that kind of goes a little ways to diffusing any potentially, you know, politically toxic element to this issue that it has had in other contexts. You can see, Katie, can't you, if you look back at films in this period, you can see how both the issue of Vietnam War vets and homelessness is sort of refracted and filtered. So in Rambo First Blood, which is not necessarily a sympathetic film, which is a pretty violent film, a sliced alone is a homeless Vietnam War vet in that first one in 1982. You've got Trading Places with Ackroyd and Murphy, where you've got a homeless vagrant who swaps places with a city boy. And then all those, that great swathe of Vietnam War films, all the way from Platoon in 1986, Full Metal Jacket in 87. Coming Home earlier. Coming Home Deer Hunter much earlier. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. you can see how this whole issue, Stephen, is reflected in the wider culture of America at the time. Yeah, and it's such a different from earlier eras. Christopher Hitchens in his memoir talks about growing up in the UK in the 1950s. You know, he thought that every movie and television show was about World War II. (laughs) No one seemed to be making movies about anything else other than the Allied victory in World War II. And also in the depictions of homelessness that changed, that that song you referenced, Hallelujah, I'm a Bum, also a title of a screwball comedy in the 1930s that is a comedy about homelessness. (laughs) Of course, the most famous comedic homeless character was Charlie Chaplin, the little tramp, you know, just bankable movie character. You could not make enough movies about the little tramp and just, you know, cash in at the box office. I mean, we still make patriotic movies in America, but much more of the film treatments have that kind of darker character to it. Yeah, oftentimes homelessness itself is featured. Movies about homelessness, poverty, you really, it's hard to do a comedic treatment of it that people are going to be comfortable with. Um, but in past generations, that, that was more the case. It does occur to me, Stephen, that it's kind of catnip for Hollywood to have these nuanced portrayals because you have someone who served their country. You know, you have the, the main character who's a maybe a fallen hero. He's come back and he can't quite 
quite reintegrate with the world he knew before. And he's, you know, just narratively, my goodness, you know, he's vulnerable. He has needs. There's sensitivity there. Like, like there's so much more depth than there would be to a cookie cutter, black and white, gung-ho kind of 50s style, you know, I've saved the world and now I'm getting a ticker tape parade. And it occurs to me as I was sort of formulating this this idea, I think for the first time you're seeing men in particular, because we are talking about vets who were by and large men, uh, you're seeing men who are showing all of the colors of their masculine rainbow, which include having limitations, failing, being sensitive, um, struggling. And in a way, it's kind of a, a a fast track to educating the world that, you know, there, there's more to men that meets the eye. And I think that was probably a bitter pill to swallow for people. Like, that's what was so awkward and unpleasant about confronting homelessness is that you see these people who did nothing but what they were told to do, and they did it correctly, and they did it to the best of their ability, and they were um, suffering on the street. So I think it's sort of interesting. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, yeah, again, it's a big contrast from the World War II generation. Sometimes people call them the greatest generation, but another term is the silent generation. I'm in my 40s, so when I was growing up, as there, you know, my friend's grandparents at World War II veterans, and um, they didn't talk about it. You know, they just understood their intense experiences. They didn't, you know, you, you would hear references to the fact that they had these recurring nightmares, you know, decades later, but they just didn't talk about it. And clearly, there's more uptake in mental health services among veterans now than there was. Partly that reflects, I think, just a societal change. We're a more therapeutic culture now, therapy, more normalized thing. But I, I, I should say, from the perspective of mental health policy in general, we still have a lot of trouble with the most serious mental illnesses, like schizophrenia. Are we better at treating schizophrenia now than decades ago in light of this more therapeutic culture? I don't know. It, it's still a really big problem. You know, whatever else we're doing with on the therapeutic front, we're going to need to be maybe thinking a little bit differently about the very most most difficult, serious mental illness challenges. In some of those Vietnam War films that I've referenced, Stephen, we see soldiers trying to cope with the trauma and the horrors of war by getting out of their minds on a number of illicit drugs. How big an issue was that in the rise of homelessness amongst vets when these veterans returned to America? Well, one thing that researchers say is that, you know, the the reason why veterans become homeless is often kind of the same reason that anybody becomes homeless. And certainly substance abuse is a very higher problem um, amongst the veteran homeless population. And, you know, to some extent, this is something America has always dealt with as, you know, we're very focused on the opioid challenge right now in the 1980s. As the song references, it was crack that was everyone was focused on. To some extent, our focuses on those have caused us to overlook how serious alcoholism was at other times in American history. I mean, America would not have embarked 
on the grand experiment of prohibition were it not the fact that people thought we really got to try something because this is just out of control. Where it really comes up, another way you can talk about the causes of veteran homelessness, also just what are the types of programs that we build for people? There is a sense in which if you need a programs with veterans in them to help homeless veterans on the street. So having veterans who have served and also who have overcome, who are in recovery, who have overcome their addiction is viewed as, you know, really critical to help in an effective way with the people who are, you know, on the street and, you know, really need a lot of help. What gets done, Stephen, once this crisis develops, what organizations develop to reflect it and to try and do something about it? Well, the government gets involved in a, in a big way. You know, I mean, charities, charities remain an important player on the social policy scene in America, you know, Child welfare, poverty, whatever. Charities are still important players. The story of the history of you know welfare in America is government playing a larger role and to some extent crowding out pure charity. The federal government gets involved in a very big way, particularly with veterans. Even more so in the recent past 10, 20 years, there was this big effort to try to end veterans' homelessness. That means more funding, more funding for programs, again, specifically targeted for veterans, in addition to all the other things that the American welfare state already does. We can always debate, as we have since the Civil War era, are we doing enough to help our veterans? But certainly we are doing a lot and another question to ask is how, you know, how effective has all, have all those efforts been? I was interested, Stephen, in something you just said about the fact that even with the heightened awareness that mental health of the population needs supporting and the government can help out, and certainly with regard to veterans, that um, there are certain areas of mental health that haven't improved for people. So it seems like you mentioned schizophrenia, the fact that we haven't gotten better at that. I want That's funny to me. Like, it seems like if there's more awareness and, and more expertise and more money thrown at this, I wonder why there's still, uh, we're not moving the needle on that. Yes. You know, um, I mean, the backdrop there, and this is very relevant to the homelessness issue, is the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill, something that happens both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And this happens, what, in like the 70s or so? It begins in the 1950s. Oh, okay. There's a time, especially in America, where the only public mental health system was mental institutions, asylums. Um, like if you were somebody who needed the government's help to help with your mental health care, well, we, we can put you in asylum, but there's not a lot else that we can do for you. For various right. reasons people decide to start doing things differently. Um, there's a lot of a tremendous optimism in the psychiatric community coming out of World War II in the 1950s that we can, we've made so many progress with other diseases, now mental diseases, we're ready to take that on as well, um, and what we call community-based programs. And so those work for lots of people. Uh, antipsychotics are coming online at this time as well. And this is a general point for social policy. People who are interested in the treatment, interested in services, who are motivated to accept whatever's on offer, things tend to work well for them, particularly if those programs are adequately funded. People who are reluctant, who are lost in their minds, sometimes referred to as service resistant, that approach doesn't work quite as well. And again, with this kind of heightened visibility to these problems, if someone's in an asylum for, you know, in some cases, decades, not a very visible problem. It's still a problem, but not a visible problem. When that's not happening, people are really, it's really just kind of in your face, untreated serious mental illness. And, you know, what are we going to do about this? We've talked mainly, Stephen, about Vietnam War era veterans 
ending up on the streets. Have we seen this pattern repeated with future conflicts that America has been involved in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq? Well, generally speaking, the number of homeless veterans has been going down. Um, Some people do attribute that to the funding that's been directed towards the problem. But also, it's the number of veterans in America has been declining. I mean, in Vietnam War, that was a draft. I mean, that was a huge population of active duty people as they've been fading from the scene and the all volunteer force was instituted as a legacy of Vietnam in the mid 1970s. So it's smaller portion of the population who have any sort of experience um, with military service. The sensitivity is just as high as it was in the 1980s, in some ways even more, because we already had these systems in place. We just had to add more funding to them. But so far, it appears to be, to the extent that you can talk about you know, homelessness being under control, um, the veterans' homelessness problem, it's not growing at the moment. So it seems to be at least to a degree, more under control. Thinking about going ahead to the the Iraq wars, for instance, Tom, it reminds me of this change I noticed living in the States in the early 80s and then visiting in the 90s from the UK where I was then living. There was this whole thank you for your service culture that emerged and bumper stickers, you know, thank you to our military. Sports games. Yeah. And it, and it was very much like, you know, you'd be at Target or Walmart or something and then, you know, you'd see somebody in their uniform and you would always very deferentially go up to them and offer this sort of blessing. And it, it felt nice. But I'm wondering, Stephen, if that was actually, do you think, a true increase in appreciation for vets or was it just kind of something to make yourself feel like you've done your bit. One word I would suggest is it's it's a little effusive. Yeah, my sense is that like, you know, professional football, professional baseball, they weren't just like all like all the time. Like they they, they can't do enough to prove that they are pro like we get it. NFL is yeah. pro troops. Like we didn't think you weren't. And that yeah, my my sense is that you know, when military service was more common, when like everybody's dad had served. Right. It just wasn't like that. This feels more performative in a way, this sort of appreciation. It does. I mean, it has been accompanied by an increased appreciation for uh, vet trauma uh, to the point where some veterans are actually um, irritated by this fact that they think that everybody's assuming that they have some sort of debilitating trauma. Oh, okay. Um, That's an interesting they, perspective. Just, just because they served. It just, it just seems, I don't know exactly what to make of it or whether I'm sure that it, that it's something that I dislike and that it's just, you know, socially negative, but it just seemed very different from previous years. I guess it was, I mean, I guess ultimately benign overcorrection, better that than the alternative, I suppose. I do think about Donald Trump's clumsy attempt to, I don't know if he was trying to pander to Vietnam vets, but he he did that interview with Howard Stern some years ago where he said, sex in the 80s was my personal Vietnam. (laughs) So, of course, he was a famous draft dodger, you know, because of bone spurs or something like four different times. But he was trying to like say that, you know, he had served his time because he was dodging, dodging herpes like landmines, I, I imagine is what he was Implying. I mean, as many things with Trump, he, he gets away with saying things that most poli- most politician would not say something like that. I mean, many politicians, because they were very focused on their career at that time, they didn't serve, even if they are, they were of the age, but they'd be very careful. You got to be very careful sure. about what you um, say about veterans. Yeah. 
you know, one thing that comes up is that th- this issue of homeless veterans becomes more common in the volunteer era, which is weird. Oh, that is weird. And, and researchers have really honed in on that. Even when in the 80s, where there's still lots of v- Vietnam veterans around, they were seeing a, a very high proportion of these people who entered the service after Vietnam, like, like the late 70s, were not exposed to combat. That then raised the question of who, you know, who who is serving, who's who's joining up. That was a time right before these this problem burst on the scene in the way that we're talking about it, where military service was, you know, lower status than it had been. Like, why why would you do that with your life? Oftentimes, what leads people into veterans' homelessness are these, you know, problems in their life that they had before serving. It structures your life. It gives you, you know, it solves your problems for a time. But then what happens afterwards and maybe some of those problems reemerge. And that's definitely something that some researchers have honed in on with the veterans homelessness problem. Stephen, where are we with homelessness in America now? We're recording this episode of Fire. What are the numbers in America at this point? There are probably about 550, 600,000 Americans who are technically considered homeless. It's really a tale of two countries. Most places in America, homelessness is not a salient issue. It's not the an issue that comes up in public opinion polls. What are you most concerned about? Very different story on the coasts. Uh, New York City, California, the Pacific Northwest, it's the number one issue. And there's certainly a sense in which it's just as bad as ever. So they're still grappling with how to kind of keep the problem under control. Do, do we do we say we need to end it? Well, like in the early 2000s, the George Bush era, there was this idea, there were these people who called themselves abolitionists, for, but for homelessness. We're going to end homeless. Um, and if you, you're not on board for saying we can end homeless, well, we you're arguing in bad faith, you're a bad person. Now it's like, if you say I'm about to end homelessness anytime soon, especially in California, people look at you like, well... You seem like a nice person, but I'm not sure you exactly know what you're talking about. It is a source of disgrace. It's gotten so bad in these in those places like San Francisco and Los Angeles that it's it's a real question what even a modest degree of success would look like. I lived in Los Angeles for 12 years in the early 2000s, and during my time there, and certainly since I've lived there, the homelessness, just even in the area that I lived in, in the Hollywood Hills, is just has exploded. So you have encampments, not only in the Hollywood Hills, but under on ramps and off ramps to freeways and people just tucking themselves in wherever they can. And one of the most kind of upsetting and seemingly quotidian at the same time things that I witnessed was a, a woman living in a tent uh, right next to a, a parking lot outside a grocery store and you could just sort of peek into the tent and see that she neatly had her accounting and her admin like she was you know going through her paperwork maybe doing her taxes I don't know carrying on you know not somebody who necessarily couldn't get their life together because of addiction problems or mental health problems but she fell off the grid for some other reason. But you, it's almost like there's there's a new level of homelessness where you're still functioning and you might even have a job. You probably She probably has a job. And like you say, it's more overt and more in your face. So it does seem like it, it's a problem, particularly on the West Coast. And um, 
it's more of a problem than ever before. The, the, particularly the street problem, the, the problem of people living in public places. It's spread is another thing that people say, like if you remember what it was like in L.A. back in the early 2000s, they're just everywhere. The beaches, you know, the mm. suburban areas. In a way, it harkens back to that earlier hobo culture of the guys just riding the, the, the rails all over the country because you, you saw them. Everywhere. Yeah, that's right. But the character of the population is is much different. I think there's a portion of people in California who, because real estate is so expensive there, they are either living out of their car or on the street in a way that they wouldn't be if they lived in another place. But the addiction and mental illness aspect of it are still very defining in LA and San Francisco. And so what type of programs do you make for people? They need housing. Okay, but we, we don't really want to just ignore these other problems as we're trying to develop housing for them. So it's very complicated What's what a homeless service system should look like. And Stephen, in your experience, and as you've been writing about this issue and studying it, what are the success stories? What actually works? At, at this point, the best thing to do is to not let it get out of control in the first place. I think that West Coast cities look with envy on those many American cities that just don't have to debate homelessness in the way that they constantly do. So, you know, I think we need more housing programs with a greater variety. We probably need more work-oriented programs, more sobriety-oriented programs. The portion of the homeless population that's more functional, I think in the way that you allude to, they tend to actually get overlooked. It has to be triaged. It has to be focused on the hardest cases. And those programs are going to have very low expectations for what these people can achieve in their life. And some people actually, we expect probably too little in terms of uh, developing homeless programs for them. But we're going to need a variety of of solutions to to help this very diverse population. Stephen, it's been brilliant talking to you today. I think both Katie and I have learned a great deal about a fascinating topic. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Katie, I have to say, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed talking to Stephen and exploring the topic, but also picking up on a few of the loose threads from my dissertation all those years ago. Yes, you were a young academic delving into this very subject. Academic is maybe the sort of, maybe going over the top, Katie. I mean, the fact that there was a Football World Cup in the United States of America in 1994 (laughs) in the summer. Oh, you had a slight agenda. It happened to be going on and there happened to be some big matches I could get to down in Stanford, including the semi-final between Brazil against um, Sweden. But apart from that, Katie, yes, I will take the term academic for the first time in my life. All right. Well, you deserve it. You wear it well. Listeners, if you would like another podcast to listen to, try The Secret History of the Estonia. It's an investigation into the mystery of why a passenger ferry sank back in 1994, killing 852 people. This was Europe's worst peacetime shipping disaster since the Titanic. And many people remain convinced the truth behind the sinking has been covered up. Journalist Stephen Davis hears unbelievable eyewitness accounts from survivors and speaks with investigators who've been working on the case for years. This is fascinating stuff, and it ends up delving into espionage, spies, and the Cold War. I'd like to ask you, Tom, what is the difference between espionage and spies? I've wondered that many times, Katie. Well, if you have to listen to this show to find out, definitely worth checking out. Just search for The Secret History of the Estonia. 
If you would like to get in touch with Katie and me with a story or perhaps an idea for a guest for the show, you can, of course, contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We are at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. And Tom, next week, a pretty heavy topic. One of the big topics to emerge from the 80s, KT, is going to be fascinating to get into it. It is about the AIDS epidemic. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.